That's impressive. The lights go up and you guys quiet down. Good morning. Too bad they didn't have enough fireworks on Gold Lake last night. They need to work on that. Thought, my word. Uh, we went some friends out on a out on a boat, and it was pretty cool. It just surrounded by the fireworks. Uh, Arlene and I live uh, most of the, our primary homes in Colorado Springs, and our deck uh, looks south down over Garden of the Gods in the city and. Colorado Springs is a big military uh, uh, town, and uh, two favorite places. This was amazing. Colorado Springs is also incredible because uh, fireworks are going out all over the city, and, and you can see them. But we're blessed people, aren't we, to live where we live, to be in the country where we are. And it's, it's pretty cool every time I come in here and hear the enthusiasm as a parent, the privilege of having the partnership that you've got with the staff for your kids, and they are for your kids, and that to see Christ formed in them, as Paul would talk about. All right, so before we, uh, we dive in, schedule-wise, I want to make sure, Colonel Mustard, with the dagger in the study, um, you guys probably don't even know that, do you? I know you do. I'm talking to these guys. They're, they were born three weeks ago. So, uh, you, you know about Colonel Mustard in the study with the lead pipe? Okay. And, did, oh, he turned around and had you happy stand up because I'm asking a schedule question. I, I just like look, watching you stand at attention to talk to me. So, 11.15 or 10.15 to 11 session, we take a two-minute break. Yeah, so 15-minute break. Then we come back for Q&A. Perfect. And then we're done at noon. What's for lunch? <laughs> Did you hear him use it? Delicious. He used the word... He's part of their marketing department as well. What other accoutrements are there? Um, Jesus, here we are. Still at Gull Lake and just so blessed to be here. But we're also still in the midst of our journeys. And some have had an email or a text come through when they got back into Signal that threatened to disrupt. May you allow us to settle again. and take in the Rivendell aspects of this place. I thank you that you're speaking to me, to Arlene, as well as to our new friends. So would you keep speaking and find us receptive, find us with open palms, open hearts, 
as we come to you as our shepherd. Our good shepherd. Give us what we need this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. We're going through Psalm 23 in case you were needing a refresher. So let's, uh, now there's that mouse, which is really good to see it up there. Which way is it going? There we go. Did it disappear? The Lord is my shepherd. Keep going. So he shepherds us. He restores us. He guides us. Love it. So when I, I use this in my prayer, what comes to mind when you see that word? How many of you are even familiar with this word? If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know the bagger. So what comes to mind? Elrond. Okay, love that. What else? What would you Belt it out. This is not, you don't have to raise your hand, just belt it out. Rest, did somebody say? Peace. Beauty. Covering. Strength. Let me read you a couple of quotes from... This is from the Lord of the Rings. J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, again, he wrote the book... It, the movie was so successful, he decided to write a book. And it's pretty amazing uh, the visceral impact it had on me as I was reading through Lord of the Rings long ago before, before it became a movie. In fact, that was a requirement for our boys. They were just, Andrew was, I think, um, 11 or so when the first one came out. So the boys, they, they were required to read the book before they could watch the movie. And it was uh, pretty cool. Although with the youngest, he started uh, coming along, and I was reading to him. And when the third one was coming out, The Return of the King, and we wanted to see it on opening day, I was having to do double time reading. And you guys remember in the Santa Claus with Tim Allen, and he's, he's reading, and he thinks, and they, you know, I was starting to do that and turn three pages, and Stephen said, Dad, you skipped something. <laughs> so, 
So if you aren't familiar with Rivendell, Frodo and his companions are being pursued by what they will soon discover to be unspeakable evil. They've already experienced some of it, but over the course of the next year, it'll become layer upon layer of intense stress and fear. And they're being pursued by these black riders. They don't know all that they are, but they have started to realize these are not people to be trifled with or beings or whatever they are. And you're exhausted and you're thinking, I, I can remember reading the book and I'm at the beginning of this trilogy and these are not little books. And I was exhausted after the battle up on table, uh, on the uh, tabletop, not tabletop, what was it? What? Weathertop, thank you. And thinking, ah. and they got to Rivendell, and I just breathed a sigh of relief because this is a place that was protected from the evil. It's a place where Elrond ruled with kindness and wisdom and great, great power. And I was thinking, wow, I think I'd like the rest of the the novel to be just Rivendell. And I knew that wasn't going to happen. But they needed Rivendell for a while. And see if some of this has the impact on you viscerally. There are, in fact, things, let's see. Um, I'm going to skip down. Tolkien wrote this about another in another book about what he did in the house of Elrond was a refuge for the weary and the oppressed and a treasury of good counsel and wise lore. But this is from Lord of the Rings. Frodo wakes up, he passes out from the wound of the, the ring wraith. He wakes up. He says, where am I and what is the time? He said aloud to the ceiling. He didn't know the wizard Gandalf was right there. In the house of Elrond, and it is 10 o'clock in the morning, said a voice. It's the morning of October the 24th, if you want to know. Gandalf, cried Frodo, sitting up. There was the old wizard sitting in a chair by the open window. Go a little bit later. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house. Whether you like food or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness and fear and sadness. A little bit later in the same chapter, such loveliness in living, in, in, in living things Frodo had never seen before nor imagined in his mind, and he was both surprised and abashed to find that he had a seat at Elrond's table among all these folks so high and fair. Though he had a suitable chair and was raised upon several cushions, he felt very small and rather out of place. But that feeling quickly passed, and the feast was merry and the food, all that his hunger could desire. Tolkien was a follower of Jesus and no doubt, the imagery of Elrond's table had a little bit to do with this psalm. 
And it's a theme you see in Scripture. Job chapter 36, not a pleasant context situation, but in the midst of that, he is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. There's some Elrond reactions that my heart has when I see that. Not always do we think that, though. The children of Israel, the psalmist quotes them, they spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the desert? And if there's one thing I want you to get from this, this morning's time is the answer to that question. And the answer to that question is, yes, in the midst, in the midst. Remember, we go through the valley of the shadow of death, not around it. So here we are. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is what my shepherd does. This is what your shepherd does. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Now we're going to dive into this, but I want you to first pay attention to that second word, you prepare. What does that evoke in you? What, 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 what clues are given to you with that word prepare? Think out loud. Is that one correct answer? I'm just curious. What? The intentionality. What else? I still didn't hear. Thoughtfulness. Hmm. I love that. He's there before you are. What? Completeness. So think about whatever you're grappling with right now. Never does God say, Gabriel, I just saw what's happening in Matt's life. We better do something. He's there. He's there at the top of the mountain. He's coming up. Well, he's bringing the ram up on the other side of the mountain. He knows what we're going to need when we know it, uh, before we know it. Your father knows what you need, Jesus says, before you ask him. And that word prepares, you could spend an, uh, quite a bit of time just chewing on it between you and your father. He's always preparing. He's always getting the exact meal that you and I need together. But let's keep going with the rest of the passage. I'm going to take it down phrase by phrase. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So at my shepherd's table, I'm going to give you three results of being at his table, this table that he prepared in the midst of whatever fallenness I'm facing. Uh, the first thing is at his table, I, I'm, I'm liberated. It is in the presence of my enemies. In Hebrew, it says, in your face. Just kidding. <laughs> but there's so often that we think we've got to get everything straight, everything together, all the difficulty eliminated, then we can feast. God says, no, you feast now. You feast now in the presence. We tend to focus, though, in, on the enemies instead of on the table. I love what Hebrews 
talks about, let's see, I'm going to get there in any moment. Maybe I didn't, I'll come back to it, I guess. This is the benefit of being on this side of the stage and not over there where the laptop is. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do we get the gravity of that? You know, one of the ways that we deal with our enemies is we, we seek to downplay the enemy in terms of his power. Don't ever do that. Don't ever misunderstand his agenda. He has got one agenda, and that is to absolutely devour you. He's lost you. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's lost that battle. C.S. Lewis's uh, little, little bitty novel about screw tape letters, he still has a lot to do. This is a counsel of a senior devil to a junior devil, and the subject that has been assigned to the junior devil, this human, comes to Christ, and the senior devil says, your job is not over. So now you want to destroy his, his effectiveness for the kingdom as well as his enjoyment of it. So the, the, the key is not to downplay the enemy. Jesus says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So I focus on, okay, I'm not going to downplay the enemy, but I am going to focus on Christ's ability to protect me from the enemy. Dear children, you're from God and you've overcome them. These are the enemies, the spirits. He says, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Second Chronicles 20.12, our, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Notice what their focus is. They are overwhelmed and they're making a choice. I can either focus on the enemy or I can focus on you. Now we come to the passage in Hebrews I was looking for a second ago. Hebrews chapter 12. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on the enemy and the situation and how awful and how overwhelming it is. No. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're not ignoring the enemy, but our focus is not on the enemy. Our focus is on the one who's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And so when I'm sitting at the table that God has, the shepherd has prepared for me in the presence of my enemies, I'm cognizant that they're there. I'm not ignoring that they're there, but I'm not fixated on them. I'm fixated on him, that he's enough. By the way, I've had a couple of you say that, that tasting his enoughness, where's the word enoughness came, come from? I've never heard it before. The reason you've never heard it before is I think I made it up because I've never heard it before either. But it's now in your dictionary. His enoughness. I've actually several times prayed for you guys and prayed that you would taste his enoughness this week, the enoughness of his table. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good 
every good work, you're going to be liberated to abound in what you need to do for this particular moment. So at my shepherd's table, I'm not just liberated from my enemies. He reminds me at this table, when I'm communing with God, when I'm getting into his word, when I'm gathering others around his table, I'm receiving what he needs. I'm liberated from the intimidation of the enemy because I'm fixing my eyes on God's enoughness, not the enemy's. Because the enemy is not nearly as enough. It's powerful, is deadly, can do great damage. But I'm liberated from the fear of that. Remember, this is coming out of last night. I don't have to fear evil. It's not that evil isn't there, but greater is he who's in me than he's in the world. But there's something else that happens. When I pull, my, pull a chair up to, the, uh, to his table, I was looking around, if there's a chair and a table, it's going to take too long to get that. You anoint my head with oil. <laughs> I, I, I gave a little hint. I think it was on Sunday. I love this statement. We don't get it in the West. What in the world does that mean? There's an Assyrian text, uh, an Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, I guess is how you say his name, never ask him, but it describes, in this Assyrian text, it describes, this is very typical in the Middle East, that he would drench the foreheads of his guests at, a royal, ban- at royal banquets with the choicest of oils drench their foreheads. So you would come in, there were a couple of of traditions within the Middle Eastern culture. One is foot washing, because you're coming in from the desert, sandals, really nasty. So that's that's almost a defensive way to love someone, is to take care of the dirt. But then... And, it, it, with, and the anointing of oil with Jesus, there was something that there, there was that was related to this ability to honor and this desire to honor a guest. So they would take the choices oils and fragrances and anoint. So you came in, let's wash your feet, get that taken care of, and now I'm going to put this expensive oil on your head, and you don't wipe it off. Not, and it's, it's, it's not because you don't want to offend me. You don't wipe it off because it smells great. And you know that this is a mark on you as someone who is loved and esteemed and honored at this table. Psalm 104 verse 15, the Lord makes wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. So imagine at the, by candlelight at this table, and of course it's going to be a low table and everyone's on cushions, everyone's face is glistening. Why? Because you're all there because you're loved by the host. You're honored by the host. I'm an honored guest at his table because of Jesus. So are you. 
That oil is smooth to the touch, it's fragrant in its scent, it's fresh in terms of its sight. Just think, it's all the senses. Let's move away from, yeah, God loves me, let's move on, what's relevant? Settle in that, savor it, enter in that moment, catch his gaze. The enemy's out there, but I'm doing this table for you. I want to liberate you from the fear that was chasing you when you came in here. And I want to remind you that greater am I who's in you than he is in the world. And it's not something I'm doing out of obligation. I'm doing it because I love you. Psalm 45, God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now you put that in the context, how cool is that? Uh, You know, I've heard that, heard that for years. He's anointed us with you. That's what it's referring to. And you and I gather as glistening people with the oil of our shepherd. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Philip Seymour Hoffman, I saw him back, I think it was, in, it was the year before he died of uh, 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 a heroin overdose. I saw him on Broadway portraying Willie Loman, and a few weeks after I saw it, I saw an article in the New York Times. He was asked about portraying the character, and it was powerful. Willie Loman and the death of a salesman. And this is what he said. He said, it really seeps, the power of this play, it really seeps into why we're here, what we're doing, family, work, friends, hopes, dreams, careers, what's happiness, what's success, what does it mean, is it important, how do you get it? Ultimately, what gets you up in the morning is to be loved. Remember I talked about Seinsucht? Longing, yearning, ultimately we yearn to be loved by God, our Creator. We yearn to be loved by one another as well, but we got to make sure we don't try to expect the love that only God can give from each other. But when we're now loved by God, we're freed up to love each other and free to free to, to receive that love. But what he's saying, this man who, who died of a heroin overdose... Our ultimate yearning is to be loved. I just wish somebody had conveyed to him that he had a seat at the Father's table. To be liberated from those enemies chasing him and to be loved. My question is, can you hear God's voice in that? Isaiah 43, verse 4. Since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. Recently, I was playing golf with a guy. I don't know him that well. Very successful businessman. We're walking down the fairway. 
and he tears up. He's telling me some of his story. There's all this success out there that people know of, but there's, there's some ache in his heart. And we, talk, we were talking about love and grace, and he said, but I, I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his grace. I said, that's why it's called grace. But it is so hard for us to receive these kind of words from God. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Doesn't mean you won't have difficulty. Remember, he guards us. He's going to get us home. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Gosh, this is hopeless. No, no. No, you're loved by the king. No, you're loved by the king. Don't let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save, and he will take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. No, you don't deserve it. But that's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called good news. You guys know the phrase, eating on the run? God's enoughness is not fast food. Sure, you can grab it on the go every now and then when you need it, but take some time to savor, to sit. Put the phone down. Go sit by the water. Herman Melville and Moby Dick says, water and meditation are wedded forever. It's a great quote. He says right in the beginning of the novel. And just take a couple of these truths, a couple of these words. What's the spirit ricocheting around in your heart regarding God's posture towards you through Jesus? And take the butts out of there. The but, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, yeah, he does. But you don't know how repeatedly I fail. Yes, he does. I still delight over you, my daughter, my son. Huh. But thanks be to God who always, you know what the Greek word for always means? Always. Haven't you guys learned yet my Greek scholarship and Hebrew scholarship? Remember, you combine it with the gift of clarifying the obvious. Who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Now, put that in context. Again, the perspicuity of Scripture where the best commentary in Scripture is Scripture, that aroma. Now go back to that oil that we are anointed with. When guests would leave a dinner like that, people would smell the love of the King on them. The love of the host whoever it was who was hosting the dinner that anointed them with oil, you smelled. And said, 
oh my, you're, you are honored by so-and-so? You're loved by him? He spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. I know the shepherd. I mentioned this really quick before. I probably will do it again very quick because I want to get to a couple of other things. But that phrase, hurt people, hurt people, is true. But also, loved people, love people, is equally true. Jesus' great command is you love one another with what? The love that I've given you. We're to anoint each other with that same fragrance. So when I'm sitting at his table and thinking, I can't believe I'm here. Did you catch Jesus' wink? You're here because I want you here. I paid to have you here. Be liberated from your fear. The enemies are right outside, but they can't touch you. And you're going to be strengthened. Hebrews talks about being strengthened with grace to go out. But you're also loved. You see the glistening that you got on your face? Man, that's a reminder of my blood that was shed for you. And if that's not good news enough, it keeps coming. Because this next word is a word that people in a lot of fundamentalist contexts cannot embrace. A lot of us church folks, we have those things where, like this guy that I was talking about, just cannot fathom God's love. And then you bring up a word like lavished. I'm sitting at his table. And I just breathe. I'm I'm liberated from the, the lies of the enemy. And I know I'm loved. My face is glistening and the people around me, we're loved people. But it's not just, okay, I think you've had enough, Matt. He says, let me, let me pour some more for you. Let me dish out some more for you. Let me lavish you. David says, my, when I'm at my shepherd's table, my cup overflows. I'll lead communion in a number of contexts. Um, my favorite is if I'm in a situation where it's outdoors, You'll catch why it needs to be outdoors in just a moment, just for the sake of the housekeeping staff. But I love talking about this. And in pouring the wine and breaking the bread, 
this is his body broken for you and this is his blood shed for you. And I like pouring the wine into a, a glass and talking about the lavishness of his, of his grace. And I keep talking and I keep pouring and you can see nobody's looking at me after a moment because they're looking at the cup because I don't stop. And I drain the entire bottle and it's spilling out over the ground. It's his lavish love. And my God will meet all your needs according to his scarcity. He's budgeted. As long as you don't push it too far, he'll have enough. Now, according to his what? Say it out loud, please. Glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and it's in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he doled out begrudgingly because he can't believe that we've messed up as much as we have. Probably many of us have a grandmother or an aunt or a mom or somewhere back in there that would always keep piling on the food. Oh, you need to eat some more. You need to get some, some fat on those bones. No, no, I'm good, Grandma. That word lavish, it's a Greek word, it's perisuo. It's, it's used a number of significant places. John 10.10 10 is another place, abundant. I, I've come that you might have, 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 have zoe, the zoe of my father, the life of my father, and have it perisuo, have it lavishly, have it abundantly, overflowing. Get a load of this. Isaac Dinesen was a Norwegian author back middle of last century. Uh, you might have seen a movie long ago called Out of Africa. She, that's about her life. She was raised in proximity to religious people, but didn't embrace because of what she saw. In 1958, she wrote a novel really a short story, novelette called Babette's Feast. Uh, It's a story I love because it's a gospel story. It's all about this lavish that God has done. Here's the context. So there was this small religious sect that lived on the northern shore of Norway, a place called Berlevag. This religious sect at one time had maybe 100 people in it. The guy who founded this sect was was called the dean. It was very, very legalistic, very austere. The people only wore gray or black. 
They didn't, she talks about how they were never fond of laughter, never fond of, of parties, never, it was just a very sober, in the worst sense of the word, existence. The dean died, but before he did, he turned over the leadership of his sect to his two daughters, Martine and Philippa. Now, you've got to backtrack a little bit before this, this handing over of the mantle. Both of these young women were gorgeous. So, Philippa was singing in church one day, and an opera singer named Achille Papin, he was a French opera singer, one of the most famous opera singers in all of Europe, headquartered in Paris, he had been doing a concert up in uh, the north in what we now know as Oslo. And he was burned out and asked somebody for a recommendation. They recommended Berlevog just because of its location. He rented a cottage one Sunday morning. He wasn't prone to going to church. He went to church. He sits in the back and he hears this woman sing. And he goes up to her and asks, oh, you have an amazing voice. I would like to teach you if you would be willing. And she asks her father, he says, good. They uh, start rehearsing, and she begins to get more and more nervous, though, because he's wanting her to leave Berlevag and become one of the most famous opera female sopranos in, in Europe. And she finally consults with her father and says, I'm not going to do that. So Papa goes back to Paris. A little while later, Philippa, Martine and Philippa were named after Philip Melanchthon and Martin Luther. So you get the idea here. Uh, Martine was uh, courted by, there was a woman in the church, in the sect, she had a nephew whose parents had sent him to her because he was unruly, his name was Lawrence Lowenhelm, and he got to know some of the people in the church while he was staying with her, and he fell in love with Martine, and she did not return the favor. And so he left. He went off to Europe, became a, 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 a general, uh, married one of the ladies-in-waiting of Queen Sophia's court in Norway. So you move along, the, the dean dies, he passes over the leadership to these two women. They're now older, it's a rainy night, it's 1871, an absolutely miserable evening, and there's a knock on the door. They open the door, and there's this disheveled woman, drenched. And she is barely standing, and she pulls out a letter from her coat. And then she collapses, unconscious. They open the letter, and it's a letter from Achille Papin the opera singer. He says, the bearer of this letter, Madame Babette Hersant, has had to flee from Paris. Civil war has raged in our streets. French hands have shed French blood. Madame Hersant's husband and son have been shot. She herself was arrested and has narrowly escaped. She has lost all she possessed and dares not remain in France. A nephew of hers is a cook to a boat bound for Christiana and he has obtained shipping opportunity for his aunt. 
This is now her last sad resort. How she is to get from Christiana to Berlevag, I know not, but you will find that even in her misery, Babette has still got resourcefulness, majesty, and true fortitude. Then he includes a couple of paragraphs about missing Philippa and regretting she's not singing opera in Paris. But then he says, I beseech you to take Babette in. And then at the very end, he throws one little grenade at the end of his letter. Three words. It's kind of like an, oh yeah. The three words are, Babette can cook. They look at each other and say, we don't need a house. We don't need a housekeeper. We can't afford it. They didn't have that many people because by this time, the sect was shrinking. There were divisions and there was strife and there was jealousy and there was backbiting. I know none of you know what any of that's like in a church, in church environment, but uh, it was now about 10 people. But they say, okay, we'll take her in. It's our Christian duty. So the next morning when she was recovered a little bit, they said, all right, we're going to take you in and you could do some of the household chores. You can help us shop. You can cook. But let, we want to be very clear on something. Uh, we do not want you making any luxurious food. Uh, the, not, none of that French stuff. My, my words, not theirs. But, and so they relegated her to make only what they wanted her to make. And it was a very austere diet. Uh, bread and ale soup and a cod dish that was anything but appetizing but she said okay she made it better than anybody had ever made it before but she learned to negotiate in the market everybody she began to win over this small sect you fast forward about 12 years and Babette uh, comes to the two sisters and tells them something that just happened. A letter was delivered to her. A friend of hers had been renewing her lottery ticket in France every year, and she had won 10,000 francs. And by the way, I'm going to keep telling the story, and I will give you your full break, and we'll, okay, so relax. I'm not going into the but I, I want you to savor this story in the context of what we're talking about. And so the sisters say, oh, well, I guess that means you'll be leaving us. And she says, actually, uh, no, I would like to ask a favor of you instead. And they say, yes, what's that? She says, you know, I'd never ask anything of you. But I know that the dean's 100th birthday is coming up on December the 15th. So this is in the late summer of 1883. And I know you were talking about commemorating his birthday. And I would like to ask that you allow me to prepare a proper French meal for you and the others to celebrate. I said, oh, we don't think so. She says, I've never asked anything of you, please. And they say, okay. 
couple of weeks later, she leaves, goes to Christiana, which is now Oslo, comes back, and she made arrangements through her nephew and some others for things to begin to be shipped to Berlevog. And so along come November, and things start arriving. And the sisters are paying attention. Fine china, cases of wine, live quails in cages, a live turtle. They're freaking out. They go to their little church and they say, we have made a grave mistake. And they explained about the lottery ticket and Babette said she wants to use that. She wants to use some of that money to cook for us. And we, did, we didn't want to offend her. We thought it was our Christian duty. We said yes. And now all of this evil stuff is coming into our home. What do we do? And so finally they, they said, you know what? It would be inappropriate now to turn this down because she's gone to this work. So let, we'll agree to go ahead with this meal, but we will make a covenant with one another. None of us will enjoy it. <laughs> Nor will we speak about the food. So they all agree. December 15th comes. Babette has employed a young man in the village and has, has trained him. And they, she's to transform this, the, the sitting room, the living room, move the furniture out. So the guests assemble in the hallway till they're all there. It's all 10 of them with the addition of one more. The, the aunt of, General, of Lawrence Lowenhelm lives out on the outskirts of the city and she got word to them earlier that day or the day before and said, my son is in town caring for me for a few days. Would it be okay for him to join us? So he joins them. He shows up with her and they're all dressed in their black and their gray. He's dressed in his general's uniform that is crimson scarlet. And they're waiting in the hall, and when they're all there, the young man comes out and ushers them in. And they come in, and they see something they have never seen before, a table laden with beautiful crystal and, 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 and chandeliers and fruit and, and breads. And they sit down, and this young man begins to pour some champagne. And they don't want to have anything to do with it, but they take it to be polite. And the general says, this is an 1848 Veuve Clicquot. Where in the world did this come from? Remember, he's the one that's all traveled. This happens throughout the meal. Different dishes come out. Uh, and it culminating with a dish, cayenne sarcophage, that was a quail and, and puff pastry. And the general says... I've only had this dish one other time in my life, and it was when I became a general. It was for a banquet in my honor at one of the most famous restaurants in all of Europe, the Café Anglais in Paris. They had a woman chef there. And they prepared this. I can't believe I'm now tasting it again this far away. On the course of the meal, they start loosening up. They start apologizing to one another. It culminates with them gathering out in the snow around the fountain in the courtyard. The snow's falling and they hold hands and they dance. It's been an amazing evening. The two sisters come in to thank Babette 
They find her back in the kitchen sitting on the butcher's block. All stories represent the gospel. Think of Jesus and the sacrifice he made. She's exhausted. She has spent. She's labored for months for this meal. And they say, we want to thank you. And she says, you're welcome. My delight. I said, I guess that that means that you'll be now leaving us. She says, no, I'll stay here. I can't afford to leave. I said, what do you mean you can't afford to leave? She says, I have no money. I said, what do you mean you have no money? You had 10,000 francs. And she says, 10,000 francs is what I spent on this meal. They said, you spent 10,000 francs on one dinner? She says, yes. That's not the first time. That's what a meal like this would cost at the Café Anglais where I was the chef. Do we really know the giver of grace and what he's capable of? Have we recognized him? Or do you think he's just doling out? Are we telling him this is what I want from you instead of what do you want me to have right now by way of strength and nourishment? Do we understand what it costs him? It costs him everything. It costs bad, bad everything. And do we realize that he loves lavishing us? And we struggle with that because we don't deserve it. Really? Do we think that we deserve him doling it out? We don't deserve anything, but he overwhelms us. Nancy Spiegelberg is a woman who passed away a few years ago. I tracked her down. I had a quote of hers. I wanted to use it in my book, and I needed to get her permission. Found her at an assisted living facility in Ohio. Her brother, it was, it was amazing. Phone call, phone call. So I had this conversation. She said, I would be delighted for you to use my, my quote if you would at least send me a couple of books. I said, sure. But this is what she says. Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better. I'd have come running with a bucket. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that you would ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He's enough. And he's more than enough. So so come have a seat at his table. Jesus, I know a lot of things are ricocheting around in these, these friends. But I pray you'd give them the courage, the humility, the honesty, the receptivity. To sit at your table and be liberated and be loved and be lavished. with their foreheads glistening, with the oil of your gladness and your love and their cups overflowing.
I pray this in the name of the one who's way more than enough, amen.